Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. I'm Mike Ackerstein from Ackerstein Law. I'm an attorney in Brookline, Massachusetts that spends all of his time working with employees on employment issues. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, uh, Kate, to introduce yourself, and then I'll talk a little bit more about why we're here today. Great. Hi, I'm Kate Rigby. Thanks all for joining. We appreciate it. Um, I'm an attorney with Epstein, Becker & Green here in Boston, and I specialize in management side um, employment uh, issues, both with counseling and litigation. So thanks for joining us. Great. So non-competes are a tricky pain that create a lot of problems for lots of folks when everyone's in Massachusetts. When you've got a Massachusetts employee and a Massachusetts company, there can be all sorts of non-compete issues. This program is not about that messy situation. This program is about the even messier situation. When we've got an employee who's potentially in a different state or a company in a different state, and Massachusetts is one of the states involved, but not both of the states involved. Because when that happens, we start dealing with at least two and potentially more different sets of non-compete laws and non-compete challenges. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to be discussing with you the different types of challenges that occur when non-competes cross state lines and uh, some of the experiences Kate and I have had, and then ways that you, you might utilize to avoid some of these headaches and messes or things that you need to be aware of as you move forward. So, Kate, let me start by asking you this. What's... What's the phone call that you get where you say, "Uh oh, I've got a non-compete and it's going to involve more than Massachusetts? Hmm. Yeah, so it usually plays out in a couple different ways, but um, some version of the uh, the employee maybe lives in Massachusetts, but we, the company and all management are outside of Massachusetts. Um, our contract says that maybe even a third state um, controls potentially uh, or the person first began working in Massachusetts, they then since moved to a different state, um, say, you know, pick your state, Illinois, um, or maybe they're a bordering state like New Hampshire. And so usually at the end of the day, the, the client's trying to figure out one, you know, obviously if we have a state that we say the choice of law, we would want to potentially argue that that controls, but also realistically, what what state do we think will actually um, you know control the agreement um, in front of a court? And so that's usually one version or many versions of what happens when clients call to try to figure out these cross border situations um, in really all types of restrictive covenants, but especially in a non compete situation. And so um, when I'm looking at an employment contract or I'm helping someone kind of with their employment issue, a lot of the stuff is going to be boilerplate. And a lot of the terms and conditions, I say, it doesn't matter if you're in Pennsylvania. I don't, doesn't matter if you're working in Delaware, you know, this release of claims is the same release of claims or, you know, this um, RSU structure is going to be the same regardless of where you are. Um, not the case with non-competes though, right? Right. No. And, you know, and to take a step back too, I mean, these, the, just so for folks that maybe don't do this, 
or learning a little bit about it, you know, you you'll find restrictive covenants and non-competes in a lot of different places, as as Mike alluded to, right? You might find them in a document that says it's a non-compete, um, or we'll say maybe a restrictive covenant agreement. Um, sometimes you'll find them in handbooks. Sometimes you'll find them in again an RSU agreement, equity agreement, sale of business agreement. You might find it in um, you know all sorts of different places that you might find it. But so you know. On the employer side, sometimes I'm helping them draft them. Sometimes I'm looking at them after the client's already drafted them and we're trying to figure out where these might live. Sometimes it's when they think someone took information from them and we want to make sure when we're writing that demand letter um, to tell them to, to stop that activity. Um, we know all the different types of research covenants that might be at play. So those are where they might live. And there's sometimes different language and maybe an RSU agreement than maybe you would have in you know, your sort of standalone non-compete agreement. And so you really have to look at all of those when you're analyzing what may control in that situation. Right. And what may control is going to have an effect on how the document is going to be interpreted. We in Massachusetts have the the greater terrible, depending on who you are, non-compete law, <laughs> that at the very least makes it very clear what a non-compete is and what a non-compete isn't and what a non-compete needs to be enforceable. But if you've got an employee who is living in Massachusetts and potentially working for a company with a New Hampshire non-compete provision or a New York non-compete provision, they might have um, a, a language that is inconsistent with what would be allowable or enforceable in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that, you know, and I think the as the world we're living in now, and which is sort of the big part of what we're talking about today is that, and this was true, even, you know, before COVID, before so much of the world um, worked remotely, um, or maybe even, you know, no longer works in the state, for instance, where they the closest office was. Um, but it's now a much bigger issue, because, you know, you already had non-competes or restrictive covenants with, you know, choice of law, provisions in them that were different were the, different than the, where the person worked. But now you may have an additional state at play because perhaps the person works in one state, the business is located in a separate state, but a choice of law is perhaps in a third state because, for example, maybe they're organized um, in Delaware. And so many companies many times want to include Delaware as a choice of law just because they're trying to create some type of consistency with their contracts. Right. And so... For me, as someone that's representing employees, I'm getting two different types of calls for the most part. Either someone in Massachusetts is calling me and saying, I'm an executive at this company. I live in Massachusetts, but my work location is actually in California or the company is headquartered in Pennsylvania. What does it mean to me now that I'm thinking about leaving and go to a competitor? How do I analyze my non-compete? That's one of the types of calls I get. And then the second type of call I get is I get someone from South Carolina or Florida saying, you don't know me and I don't live anywhere near you, but I'm working for a Massachusetts company and they're telling me that I have to abide by Massachusetts's non-compete law. Do I actually have to do that? Am I actually affected by it? Or can I just kind of live and work down here in South Carolina in peace and take this new job at a competitor in Florida. Those are the issues on my end that I have to deal with um, pretty regularly. Right. And to take a step back too, I think it might help to give folks on the call a little bit of background about why that matters to those individuals. I mean, one, we 
you know, part of it matters is because people want to know what law is going to exist and right. then, right. And, and, and what law is going to apply so that they have some assurances, good, bad, or otherwise for them, whether it's on the employer side or the employee side. Um, but it also matters because those laws are very different now. And so the last few years, there's been a huge change um, in that, you know, it, it, you know, the common law, basically, if you start with sort of the common law, generally speaking, courts, when they look at non-competes and, and really all restrictive covenants, but especially with non-competes, they look at, well, what are the activities that you're trying to prohibit and how reasonable are those and how are they reasonably related to what you are trying to protect? What is the goodwill you're trying to protect? Um, or the trade secrets and con uh, confidential information that you're saying this person is going to potentially use if they go to a competitor because of the job that they're going into, maybe very similar to the job that they had with the company. Um, the courts look at you know the geographic scope, how limited is that? Is it is it too long or um, too broad? Um, you know, did this person only provide services in one state, but you're asking them to be prohibited from a competitor for ten states? Um, and then what is the the length of that non-compete? So those are sort of things that like every single state looks at, regardless of whether they have their own statute. But over the last course of the last several years, there's been a huge uptick in um, different states passing laws that have what I would call sort of like bare bones. You have to meet this requirement. Otherwise, you're not even going to you know, be able to have an enforceable non-compete no matter how otherwise reasonable it is. And those are things like that we have in Massachusetts as well, which is notice requirements. So providing the agreement with a certain number of days, for example, before they begin employment so that they have time to review and understand their agreement. If they're a current employee, that might be a different number of days, depending on the state. Um, there's one state, at least Louisiana, for example, where when you're a new employer, employee, you have to actually sign it after you begin employment. So that's very different than other states. There's wage thresholds. In Massachusetts, you have to be exempt to have a non-compete exempt from overtime under the FLSA. Um, in other states, it's not exemption status, it's an actual floor, so a certain amount that you have to make in like Illinois, for example, um, Colorado, other states. And so those are just the sort of basics that must be met. And then on top of that, you may have other restrictions about how long the non-compete may be in a particular state, geographic scope, things like that. So that's why, you know, when Mike and I get those calls, not only do we just want to know what law applies, but why it matters, because there are certain requirements that must be met for each of those states. Are you keeping track of 50 states worth of laws? Depends on the day. <laughs> um, but like generally speaking, companies just don't have the time to do that, right? They just don't want to even get to do that. Um, I do have and I have helped prepare 50 state non-competes for companies. Um, you know, a lot of times in the past, companies it was sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to these, and you really can't do that anymore. I mean, you, you can, I guess, but you know, it's not gonna be all that helpful probably to you. And so the different ways that I've seen it done, um, you can do sort of a like, you know, your sort of template non-compete. Um, and then you have within that. Uh, maybe you have a, an addenda. Maybe you only give Massachusetts employees the Massachusetts addenda. Um, maybe you, and then you give New Hampshire employees the New Hampshire addenda that has very specific language that complies with that state. Or you can take another approach, with, which is attach all the addenda to, the, to that agreement. So you're going to have, you know, depending on where the jurisdictions are, but if you're everywhere, it's 50 states in DC, and then everyone gets the exact same agreement. And each of those approaches has sort of pros and cons to it because 
you know, if you're an employee and you get 51 addenda, you're sort of having to figure out which you belong to. Um, but at least then everyone's getting the same agreement and you're not, um, you know, one of the challenges I think that comes up is how strong is your HR team, your onboarding team to make sure they know which agenda to provide to the employee. They know how many days in advance to provide that to the employee to make sure they're meeting the basics um, requirements under that law. So if you're not giving it within that 14 day time frame in Illinois, you know, you're going to have a problem if you're trying to enforce it under Illinois law. It's 10 days in Massachusetts, right? So there's every difference. Every state has different requirements. Um, and so, you know, while a lot of us that practice in different states know them generally, you can bet that every single time we have to do an agreement or review an agreement about law, we're still looking at the state's requirements because there's so many nuances. Yeah, I'm one glad that I'm on my side of the issue, which is working with individual <laughs> employees. So I don't need to know 50 states right. or wherever my employee is. Right. Unfortunately, I'm I'm probably hitting the same ones over and over again. I'm going to deal with uh, New York employees and California employees and New Hampshire employees and maybe Connecticut employees, but I'm not seeing a ton beyond that. But you know, you raise an interesting point about the strength of the HR team being important here. As yeah. someone that's you know working with employees who are getting non competes prepared either by HR or outside counsel or maybe some combination, I can tell right away who did it. You know, it, it doesn't take me very long to be able to say, okay, this was human resources and not particularly effective human resources because this isn't going to be compliant with mass law. You know, I'm working with folks who get a, a, an employment agreement from their out-of-state employer. They're living in Cambridge and they're working remotely for a company that's headquartered in Delaware. And I take a look at their non-compete and I go, not enforceable. Someone in HR didn't take the time to call outside counsel or figure out what you would need to have an enforceable Massachusetts non-compete agreement. And then I have to have an interesting conversation with my client about the pros and cons of signing a non-enforceable non-compete. But it's right. something that could have been avoided if HR had uh, worked with kind of competent outside counsel. Well, and you know, you can have all these templates done exactly right, but if they're not then used appropriately, within the right time period in advance of hiring, or if they're, you know, getting a promotion, if it's a new uh, existing employee, for example, um, you know, you don't, you don't have it done right. And actually in practice, then you sort of end up in the same place with, you know, that you would have, <laughs> would have started if you hadn't, you know, created the template to begin with. And so those are conversations that those of us that work on the, the employer side have a lot with clients that are, okay, I'm going to put this in place for you but I'm going to create a cheat sheet for you, right? So that HR knows, okay, every time I'm onboarding someone, do they have a restrictive covenant? What type of restrictive covenant do they have? You know, um, and those are other questions that we should really be asking, which is who really needs a non-compete? And who can you just provide maybe a non-solicitation agreement to? So non-solicitation of customers, for example, or, um, you know, third-party business relationships or employees or just an NDA. Um, and so those are, a lot of, I think, analysis that companies are actually doing in the last few years is determining, do I really need a non-compete for everyone? Probably not. Um, you know, who within the organization needs those? And then how do we implement those in an organized fashion for onboarding or if it's current employees, promotion, raises, et cetera, things like that as they change positions? Who really needs a non-compete is a good question to always be asking when you're discussing non-competes. But I think it's a really good question when we're talking about non-competes with out-of-state implications. 
Because if you're concerned, if, if everyone's in Massachusetts, if you're a Massachusetts company and you've got Massachusetts employees and you're concerned that one of your employees is going to leave and go down the street and start their own widget shop or, or go to your biggest competitor down the street and is going to be competing in the same geographic area for customers and talent, I totally get it. I'm going to, as a management attorney, fight you tooth and nail on the reason, or as an employment attorney, fight you tooth and nails on the reasonableness of it, but I get it. But if you're talking about someone who doesn't live in the state, all of a sudden it seems a little bit less reasonable because this person who's going to open the widget shop in uh, eastern Texas, you're going to have a hard time explaining to a judge why you need to prevent them from doing that. They're not down the street from you anymore. This is someone who has no contacts with your area. And so uh, with such a different material presence, I, I agree. I think everyone should be asking themselves, do we really need to not compete here? Because uh, I'm not sure it's protecting us. Well, and I think you've hit on what judges have sort of always done, but I, but I think are really scrutinizing even, even more now. And we can talk a little, you know, toward the end of this. I know we'll talk a little bit about sort of where we are from a big picture perspective um, and, and FTC and, <laughs> and LRV and others perhaps, but, but the, what judges will look at on, on many times is let's assume everything is sort of on paper enforceable, right? You've met all those notice requirements. You've told them to consult with counsel. You know, you generally speaking have a reasonable, you know, uh, time restriction, et cetera. But at the end of the day, a judge is still going to determine under the particular circumstances of this non-compete, what was the role that they were engaged with, with your organization? What is the role they're now either already engaged in or trying to become engaged in? And how how does that new position potentially harm, um, you know, your business, legitimate business, you know, purposes and, and or preventing, right, for the confidential information to be used in unfair competition? And that's like the whole point, right? It's not just competition, it's unfair competition and how that person is using that information they learned at your company in this new role in an unfair way. Um, and now many times it doesn't matter sort of where you're located, right? The higher up in the organization you are, the type of role that you have, especially if your role was something in an executive level where you really are, you know, part of an organization across state lines. Um, it sort of doesn't matter if you're in a different state or four states over or 10 states over because many competitors are, are on the opposite sides, you know, of the country, but fiercely competitive. And so unfairly using that information, I would argue, is is, um, is inappropriate and, and should be enforced by those restrictive covenants. But again, it's all going to depend on the nature of the how much that new position that you're trying to start is related to your former position. And, you know, protecting all of that goodwill, protecting the confidential information, protecting the unfair information, that is your concern as a management attorney. My concern or the challenges that I'm dealing with are my clients are saying, I want to leave and get to the next job. For whatever reason, I'm moving on with my career. I'm moving forward with my career. They're usually less concerned about you know, making sure my former employer's interests are protected. And they're more concerned about how can I earn a living? How can I go take this interesting opportunity? How can I take the next step in my career? And so... Um, I think that dovetails into a, a, a question we just got about, you know, the pros and cons of signing a non-compete that you know not to be enforceable. I, I get that question so much. And it's someone who is living in Massachusetts and they're presented with an out-of-state non-compete. And the answer is it 
it usually for my clients comes down to risk tolerance and almost as importantly, headache tolerance. Yeah. It's great if you have a non-compete that isn't enforceable and you want to go work at a competitor because the chances of a judge saying to you, well, you can't go do it are probably pretty low, but you might have a pretty big headache along the way. And that isn't always worth it. And so if you are living in Massachusetts and someone in Pennsylvania has sent you a lousy non-compete that you signed three years earlier that isn't enforceable under mass law, you got a lot of different considerations to ask. One, is the employer going to say, this is a Pennsylvania contract. We don't care about the Massachusetts law and it's enforceable in Pennsylvania. And if they do that, are we going to have a headache because now someone's racing to a courthouse in Pennsylvania we don't know if we're going to be able to convince a Pennsylvania judge to apply Massachusetts law or erasing a, mass, a courthouse in Massachusetts. We just don't know. And we don't know how long we're going to be tied up fighting this issue and how much money we're going to spend fighting this issue. So I'm all for, you know, taking the very strong position that your non-compete isn't enforceable. But even if you feel really good as an employee that you've got an enforceable non-compete, you're running into a headache. And that's generally something I'm trying to steer my clients and myself clear of. If I have to spend all of my time dealing with a Pennsylvania attorney who's telling me, well, their contract is enforceable, or I'm dealing with a one in Pennsylvania and one in Massachusetts, that's time, effort, and money that's kind of being expended on an issue that that might not be worth it to my clients. And 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 you know the, the money piece, right? It's a, it's an expensive headache, and it's on both sides, frankly. I mean, it's it's you know these are many times sort of bet the company or you know for the employee <laughs> bet their bank account type cases, and you know you may not have a fee shifting arrangement in that non compete that the if the employee chose to sign and thinking it was unenforceable, you know if there's not a fee shifting there, you're not you're you're taking that risk and um of hoping to win where you may not be able to recover those fees. You know many times. You know, employees when they're suing when they're suing the employer, they if they win, they can get fees. But you know, it, that's not necessarily the case if you're a defendant in a non-compete case, um, depending on what the contract says. So, you know, it, I obviously I'm not typically counseling employees in that regard, but I think it I think it's best for everyone to you know the idea is let's if we're going to have an agreement in place and sign one in the beginning, you know, if you have changes or questions, you know, modifications to do it then at the time. Um, because I think it's it's a bit of a risk, um, especially if you're an individual trying to foot that bill. It'd be very expensive. Absolutely. I'm risk averse. That's why I went to law school. <laughs> I say to and they can make their own decisions about how much risk they want to take on. But yeah. the more we can do early on to minimize uncertainty, uh, the less riskier the proposition is going to be for them. And uh, the more precisely I can tell them, here's what's going to happen if you sign this non-compete that might not be enforceable. Here's something that doesn't exist that I think a lot of people would pay a lot of money for. I would like a list of each of the 50 states or each of the other 49 states and how they treat a Massachusetts non-compete. And I'd like <laughs> a list of Massachusetts courts addressing each of the other 49 states non-competes and telling us whether or not they think they're enforceable. We don't have that. We have almost no Massachusetts case law on other states' non-competes, and there's very little out-of-jurisdiction case law on other states considering the Massachusetts non-compete law. And as a result, I feel like I've spent all I, I spend most of my time giving the law school answer of uh, probably yes, it's enforceable, probably no, it's not. But I can't tell you for certain because no court in South Carolina has ever ruled on a Massachusetts non-compete. 
Yeah, no, that's, I mean, there's, I mean, to your point, there's hardly any cases on the the statute that passed in October of 2018, let alone um, the other, you know, dealing with this remote issue. And, and even, you know, um, I don't have them in front of me, but, you know, even Delaware, which again, has been sort of a, a, a kind of a, not a go-to, but a lot of companies use it as a choice of law, again, for just consistency and ease, because trying to bring some order to uh, a, a multi-jurisdictional company. And and Delaware's become a little less, you know, depending on the, certain circumstances, less friendly toward always having that Delaware as a choice of law when they're looking at states like California or much more, um, uh, uh, or not necessarily Massachusetts, but other states like that, right? That we have a lot more sort of um, harsh requirements um, for non-compete and restrictive covenants. And so even that, you know, I, I still, so I, I counsel folks to say, okay, you can you can absolutely include that, but let's think about how much it's really tied to your organization and how much it's really tied to the individuals that you're having signing these, these non, non-compete agreements. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, to keep in mind. And to your point, I mean, you really, you really don't know. I mean, you, you really could go to a judge in Massachusetts and want even today and, and, you know, one County and a judge in another County with the same exact contract and get two different decisions. And it's not because they're inappropriate rulings necessarily. It's just because these are viewed very differently. And when you're looking at things like choice of law or which state applies, many times it's, well, who do we think, which state do we think has the most, you know, connection to this particular circumstance? And not surprisingly, you and I, if we're on the opposite side, are going to <laughs> have a lot of arguments about why are the state that we would like to apply um, should should control. So it is difficult to know in advance. Um, and and so those are things that, you know, I counsel companies on, and I'm sure you, I know you do the same when you're looking at these agreements about these are the three different options. But it it sometimes drives strategy, right? Or maybe it wasn't the thing that drove strategy before. It can sometimes drive strategy now. So to the example you gave earlier about South Carolina, if I'm representing a company and I'm wanting to argue that it's South Carolina that should apply and not Massachusetts, I might rush instead of sort of if I'm finding out that this former employee that, that you represent took what I say is confidential and proprietary information and is potentially using it at a competitor, Maybe I'm not as inclined to spend as much time on a demand letter in that situation. Maybe I'm more inclined to rush to the courthouse to try to get an injunction in South Carolina, because sometimes being the first to file and getting a judge already ruling in your favor starts that momentum in a case. Um, and so that is many times, you know, driving some of those early on decisions in these cases that frankly end up usually resolving in some way, whether it's settlement or otherwise, either at that demand letter stage or in that first, you know, a, a preliminary injunction stage, much less of them go to tr- full trial. And let me um, take a step back and just remind the, the folks listening of something that, that we might've glossed over, which is Massachusetts's non-compete law. The 2018 law says it doesn't matter if you choose a different state's choice of law provision, if the employee was living and working in Massachusetts in the time period before um, uh, the, the issue we're going to apply Massachusetts law. And so I have all sorts of employees who want to bask in the comfort of that and say, oh, well, I, I read about the mass non-compete law. Someone I know told me about it, so I'm got to be covered, right? And, and and the answer is, you know, what is that South Carolina judge going to say when someone says, well, actually, Your Honor, this is a Massachusetts employee and, and Massachusetts has a very specific law and it doesn't meet the Massachusetts specific law. That's that's where the uncertainty comes in for us. That's That's where it's... Look, I'm not sure how this is going to go, and I'm not really sure we want to 
risk finding out, is there a way we can solve this short of litigation? Because if so, I think that's an interesting proposition that we should give time to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, it, and it, you know, it's also more difficult when you have, again, whether it's the high level executives that's uh, that's really affecting, you know, the organization across uh, across the country, or whether it's someone in sales, for instance, that maybe have a broad territory. I mean, there's a lot of people, in, whether it's high level sales managers or um, you know, sales reps that are in multi that really aren't spending, you know, maybe they live in New Hampshire, they have a territory that's partly in Massachusetts, partly in New Hampshire, partly in Rhode Island, occasionally in New York, right? That happens all the time. And so, you know, then that person wants to argue, okay, well, all those states, Massachusetts might be the, the most employee friendly to me. So I want to choose that one. Well, a judge may not agree with that. You know, the judge may say, well, the company's based in New York. And so we're going to apply New York's law because all these other states sort of being equal or sort of equally applied to the employees services to the company but every but the company's based in New York so we'll we'll apply New York law um so that's the analysis that courts have to you know struggle with with or without a choice of law clause by the way um but companies are smart to include a choice of law clause because the argument is at least we should start there with the analysis and and try to start with the assumption that that choice of law should control unless the other side can prove that another state really should control because the connections are so much stronger to that other state. Um, but speaking of New York, that, that may be changing too. Right now, there's a proposed bill um, to ban non-competes in New York. It did not include a sale of business exception, um, which as you can imagine, in a place like New York State, but especially New York City, um, many businesses found very troubling given the amount of uh, mergers, acquisitions, sale of business that go on. Um, and, and Massachusetts has a has an exception for sale of business. Does have an ex- exception for sale of business. Um, and so uh, that is, you know, not accepted right now by the governor and, is, and the governor is asked to make amendments to that um, for consideration, which may, which almost certainly will include a sale um, business exception, probably include something, some type of compensation threshold, much like Massachusetts, um, Illinois, Colorado, many other states that include that as well. So... Yeah, there's there's definitely going to be change in the next few years. Um, and one challenge is keeping up to date on the changes. But for me, a second challenge, and I'm, I'm curious your opinion on this. What's it like for you when you're dealing with an attorney or you're working with an attorney from New York or, or insert other state? When you say, you know, you've got your Massachusetts clients and they're having an issue with this employee in a different state that's going to potentially involve litigation in another state, is it... The same for you when you're when you're working with that attorney from whatever New York firm or the uh, Michael Ackerstein equivalents in New York, or is what are those conversations like for you? Because for me, they're a challenge. Yeah, because usually, you know, well, I mean, whether it's that, whether they're located in a different state or or not, or that they're arguing it, but I mean, I think I, you know, typically, um, it depends if it's an attorney that honestly does this all the time and is well aware of the different types of state, you know, state laws. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of lawyers in this space, um, practice in, you know, across the country. So for those, I find that it's pretty similar to someone that I'm working with in Massachusetts for those that maybe don't do it on a regular basis, but it's part of their practice. And so now, and now they're looking at Massachusetts to have a lot of experience with it. Yeah. There's a lot more educating that goes on and arguing about which state will apply. Um, and again, that drives up fees. So it's, it, it makes it all that more difficult. And this isn't going to go away. I mean, I'm working from my home today, right? 
I'm within the state of Massachusetts, but you know, I could easily decide to to move to New Hampshire if I wanted to. Um, so, I mean, this is this is the world we're going to be living in, and so I think we all are going to be sort of stuck with that that reality. Um, and uh, but but you're right. I mean, if you're if trying to educate someone on the state and they're not used to those nuances, that's sort of the first conversation you're having about the, about the choice of law issue. That's the challenge I have, and and. You know, again, kind of going back to something I've said a couple of times, I'm, I'm in the business of trying to avoid headaches. I'm in the business of trying to avoid unnecessary time and expense. If we've got an employee at issue and we need to solve whether or not they're breaching a non-compete, I want to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. But when I'm trying to solve that problem with a Massachusetts attorney, we're speaking the same language from the very first call. When I'm trying to solve the problem with a New York attorney or a Utah attorney, we're not always speaking the same language. And definitely, if I'm dealing with in-house counsel, we're totally going to be speaking different languages. And I'm going to have to have a difficult conversation with my client where I say, look, I've got to get these folks up to speed. They're not understanding the challenge they have with you as a Massachusetts employee. And it's going to take me some time to convince them, if I can convince them, of why they're wrong on the subject or or why Massachusetts is going to control your non-compete. And that is just it works against fast, efficient resolutions to problems. I'm not sure there's a great solution for it other than this is why we try and avoid the headaches because it's not as simple. It's never as simple as sending a letter, at least from my side, saying, oh, your non-compete isn't enforceable. Here's why. It's never that simple. It's going to be time. It's going to be expense. And it is going to delay my client's ability to move on with the next stage of their career. Right. Right. We have one question that, um, let's see, I've seen binding arbitration clauses in non-competes. Oh, they're enforceable. I don't know if you have an answer to that. I mean, they, they can be, yes. I mean, assuming that the arbitration agreement is otherwise enforceable, which there's a whole list of issues with that. Um, but they can be. I mean, I, I think there's definitely pros and cons to doing that. I'm I'm interested to see what Mike thinks about that from a, um, from a st- strategy perspective. But I have... Well, I have a couple thoughts on him, but I'll tell you my strategy perspective in a second. Um, I'm going to start by addressing that question in a different way, which yeah. is um, that's a really good question to ask in a uh, non-competed cross state line presentation mm. because that's not covered by the Massachusetts non-compete law. Nope. <laughs> but folks sometimes think, especially if they don't live in Massachusetts, is okay. Everything in this agreement that says non-compete at the top is going to be governed by the mass non-compete law. And that's not how it works. The mass non-compete law is so precise and narrowly tailored to these kind of very specific issues of what makes a non-compete enforceable. And then once we get beyond that, certainly to other restrictive covenants like non-solicitation, certainly to confidentiality provisions, but even as to an arbitration provision, that's not going to be covered by the Massachusetts state law. And there are situations where you might have an employee who is subject to the Massachusetts rules about non-compete, but subject to the Colorado rule about arbitration. And Mm -hmm. so you can't just say, oh, this is a Massachusetts contract. Massachusetts controls whether or not there's going to be arbitration. Might not be the case. As to arbitration, uh, you know, in the non-compete space, I'm okay with it generally. I don't, I'm not as averse to arbitration as I think some of my folks are. 
I want predictable results. I want a predictable arbitrator. I want someone who understands these issues. And I don't want to have to spend my time explaining to a judge who might not be familiar with the issues why I'm right about my interpretation of the non-compete. I want someone who's an expert in non-competes and will very quickly say, oh, Mr. Ackerstein, you've, you've made all the right arguments. Uh, this is not an enforceable non-compete. But, but as a management attorney, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, obviously, if a client has them as they want, we'll do it. But I, I, I prefer to litigate these in federal court or federal court first um, and, and or state court. Right. That, that's what I prefer. I mean, and especially if you are the plaintiff, um, you know, there's there is something about going in, you know, in open court and filing this. And if you feel very strongly that this person, especially if someone's taking proprietary information and, and trade secrets, um, you know, just disclosing that. Right. Um, and, and that can have real weight on someone understanding that there's now a federal lawsuit against them. Um, and I also, to your point, I mean, you, there's a there's a process of arbitration of selecting the arbitrator and going before that. And, and I think that having a little bit more, to me, in some ways, you actually have a little bit more predictability when you're in a federal court, for example. Right. Um, you know your judges, and those, especially if you're filing Massachusetts, you know those judges um, and if you've been that before them. So that's my personal preference. I know some companies do that, you know, sometimes for ease, thinking it's costing less. But I will say... These days, arbitration can be just as expensive as as you know state or federal court, um, and so it's not necessarily my preferred venue for these you know type of uh, this type of litigation. So yeah, arbitration can be just as expensive for employers, but oftentimes they are not for employees. If we can somehow get the dispute governed by the employment rules, then in the first instance, more likely than not, the employer is going to be picking up the tab for everything, and That's so. Exactly. It can be helpful to my clients, especially because how often, I mean, this is more of a, a just a general non-competes. Non-competes are often wrapped up in other things. You know, we're, we're dealing with the end of someone's employment for some reason or, or another. And I'm, I'm, you know, often able to kind of bootstrap other issues in there. And now it makes it less of a commercial issue and more of an employment issue, which is where I want my uh, clients to be positioned. But I heard you talk about federal court and the advantages to that. And the first thing that happens is a shiver gets sent out of my spine because now I'm considering how much paperwork my client is about to be buried in. Hopefully this is the situation where my client is in Massachusetts, um, but not necessarily. And so I might have an out of state client who finds themselves having to litigate across state lines. And you've got a problem on your hands because you got to figure out how to get to my client who's down in, in uh, Mississippi or wherever or Florida. So let me segue to this issue. If non-competes across state lines are messy and complicated and headaches and expensive, how can I avoid dealing with that issue? And is one of them maybe figuring out more effective things to do than an across state lines non-compete? Yes. So yes and no, right? It depends a little bit on the, the person. I mean, I think there's going to be certain people that unless... Unless the, unless the FTC gets what it wants and <laughs> and non-competes are completely banned, um, essentially, um, and I guess we'll know a little bit more in, in April what their what their preference is. But um, the you know we're we're going to have you know non-competes that that companies are going to um, put in place and attempt to enforce because there are some people you know that that frankly we we need that in in place. Um, the inevitable disclosure doctrine um, is, is not necessarily alive and well. So I. I I think that they will continue, but I think that regardless of that, it is always best practice 
to ensure that you're taking other steps beyond the non-compete. You can't just say, here's a non-compete, and that's the only thing you've done to protect your proprietary information and your trade secrets. There's a lot of things a company can and really should do um, to ensure throughout the entire hiring, employment, exiting process um, that they are taking other steps to protect that. I mean, in addition to having, of course, a well-tailored, well-drafted, with carve-out language, confidentiality, non-disclosure agreement that says, you know, regardless of whether they can compete, they must not disclose certain confidential and proprietary information to competitors or other individuals. Um, there's other steps that they can take. So, for example, at the time of um, when someone's, you know, applying for a role, if you have a background check in place, you could certainly, you know, check to see if this person's been involved in other similar litigation. Um, you could, at the time of hire, again, having that well-drafted NDA is really important. Um, but it's also important, and it's not necessarily a requirement, but I think it's a really good thing for companies to do is to have training put in place so that employees understand, well, what do we mean by proprietary and confidential information? What can I use this information? What, who can I disclose this information to? Um, because it's kind of amazing when I've done some of these trainings and attended some of these trainings, the type of really basic questions people have, even after signing all of these documents, sometimes they just really don't know they can't use it. And you can really kind of ferret that out early on during the training and, and reiterate to individuals, no, you really can't go and use that and disclose that information in your industry trade group <laughs> when you're having conversations with them. Um, so that's a really good way to do that. Um, other basic things, right? Password protection, you know, capability, making sure people can't, um, having something on their screen when they log into their computer that reminds them every time of their obligations to keep confidential information actually confidential. Um, what I also really like too, or including other ideas to include, if someone has a uh, part of a specific project that's particularly sensitive, on top of their normal NDA that they may be signed at the, top, the beginning of their employment, is to give them another one and remind them why this particular project they're working on is very particularly sensitive and why we can't you know, disclose this information for some period of time or ever, depending on the situation. So, you know, those are types of things that I think companies should really think about, you know, what are, what are we actually doing to protect our trade secrets and what else can we be doing to, you know, bolster that, um, you know, at the time of exit, making sure you have an exit interview, asking them where they're going, what's the job that they're going to, is it similar or different? making sure you remind them that they have a non-compete if they have one or a restrictive covenant and giving it to them on their way out the door, even if you don't think that they're about to compete, just so that they understand what their obligations are. I can't tell you how many times I've seen in litigation or pre, usually pre-litigation, right, in the demand letter stage, the person legitimately forgot that they had this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think providing that to someone on the way out the door goes a long way to preventing some of these issues. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and the training is really important because not only does it train the employees who might be disclosing it, it helps train managers to keep an eye on what might be going on in their workforce, um, you know, paying attention to people that they might be worried about using this information. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation that I have so often with my clients, <clears throat> especially the out-of-state ones, is it starts with them saying, is my non-compete enforceable? I'm a Massachusetts employee. I signed this New York non-compete. Is my non-compete enforceable? Or I'm a Massachusetts employee. I'm moving to California. Is my non-compete still going to be enforceable? You know, these are the questions that I get. And a lot of times I have to kind of pivot them to, well, you know, I'm not sure. And for all the reasons we just discussed, it's unclear. But the 
question you want to be asking yourself is, is my company likely to enforce this non-compete? Yeah. And when are they going to be likely to enforce this non-compete? If they think you've done something you shouldn't have done or shouldn't be doing. Assume that the day you leave and return your laptop, they're going to do a forensic audit and they're going to figure out exactly what you were doing and what you were emailing to yourself or what you were making copies of. And whether or not, you know, we end up litigating over whether this Massachusetts non-compete is enforceable in another state, they're at least going to make your life miserable because they're concerned that you have the customer list or you have the proprietary research data or whatever it is. And so I can help my clients on the way out by just making sure that we're not going to trigger any of those other red flags. And then I don't necessarily need to have the debate with another attorney about whether or not the non-compete is enforceable across state lines because my client has exited in a way that isn't causing concern at the company. And your point about education is really good. It is so, so often the case that my clients say, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. My intention is not to do anything wrong. And I go, well, you know, I could see how if you squint, it looks like you were. And it's because they didn't they didn't have someone saying, don't do this. Here's why I don't do this. They just think, you know, they're, they're doing the ordinary course of business. And a classic example that I deal with is emailing things from their work account to their personal account. <laughs> They book, they book a flight to a trade show in Las Vegas, and they send an email to their spouse from their work email to their personal email, or they want to be able to do that saying, you know, here's my flight information. But then they say, oh, and by the way, I think on the flight, I'm going to want to work on this issue when I'm not bringing my work laptop with me. I'll just forward this other thing to myself. And they mean no harm by it. And they're not trying to steal work secrets. And a year later when they leave, they've completely forgot about it. But now someone's going, what did you take? So if we don't want to deal with these very confusing and not easily answerable questions about out-of-state non-competes, education and making sure people understand what they should and shouldn't be doing is just a really easy way to avoid the headaches that I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's when companies are doing that sort of at the time of exit forensic review, and a lot of times they'll go back three months, a couple months, you know, or if there's been or if there's been issues with the employee where there's been some sort of suspicion about them for X period of time, maybe they'll go back further. But, you know, one or two emails, you know, here and there sometimes won't really raise a huge red flag, but it's. But again, it's the context of what they're sending to themselves, right? Um, the timing when they sent it. But, you know, nothing like copying your entire desktop when you leave and making no differentiation between your family pictures and all of the, you know, very confidential information on your desktop or sending massive amounts of emails, you know, close to the time of when you resign that are clearly, you know, forwarding confidential and proprietary information. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of things that I've seen where people, and it's amazing because we're almost in 2024, we all know the digital world lives on forever, right? The minute you, your fingerprints are all over the place and yet people will still send massive amounts of confidential information either to their personal accounts or they will do a lot of printing at home. And when there starts to look like a pattern like that, especially when that person is going to a competitor, it of course, is going to and should raise red flags for companies to at the very least send a, a letter saying, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop it. Um, and, and going down that road. And so that, you know, I think that 
people understanding that they need to be really careful and be good, you know, exiters, right? Be a clean, be a clean exit so that you can work with IT on the way at the door to say, I do want to get my personal photos. Can you help me do that? Rather than just taking their entire desktop, um, which will, of course, red, raise red flags. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, I get, I, I cannot think of a time where anyone has ever called me and said, I'm thinking about leaving my job. Uh, can I copy my desktop? <laughs> no one ever asks permission for doing that. When I hear about people doing it, they've already left the job and they've gotten the demand letter for you, or, or they've already gotten a, a TRO filed against them. Um, and, and, and that's when they have the problem. And so if you are an employee or you're counseling employees and they're saying, well, my non-compete isn't enforceable. And by the way, I copied my desktop and now have a demand letter. It, we don't need to be dealing with the state line issue anymore. It doesn't matter. You, you've opened yourself up to all sorts of other stuff. Right. You, can't, you can't bask in the glow of, well, Massachusetts would say, you know, I'm allowed to go work at this company. No, they don't. Because once you start stealing confidential information, you kind of give up a lot of that protection. And even if you haven't given it up, you're still going to end up in litigation over the issue. So you can't rely on, oops, I'm choosing a different law provision or somehow I'm using different states' interpretation of laws to get out of my non-compete to justify or to exonerate yourself if you've done something you really shouldn't be doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and, you know, California's banned non-competes for, you know, how long now? And there's a lot of litigation because it's about trade secrets, right? right. Trade secret litigation in, in California. Um, and frankly, those are the those are the cases where you're, you know, where you if you have a state where there isn't not where non-competes are allowed, having evidence that they've taken, you know, information makes it a lot easier to enforce that non-compete um, yep. as a remedy. So I, let's see. We have one question. I'm not sure. Make sure I follow it. It says, how would you tailor what the competition is? Example is that software companies have vendor agreements that have non-competes for the products that they sell. So maybe distrib- I don't know if, the, if this is in the context of like distributors um, or or else. But so there's a, there's a couple different. I don't know. I may not be answering exactly what you're what you're asking. But big picture, whenever you're drafting a non-compete for someone um, or reviewing it for compliance, you want the prohibited activities to um, and to be as similar as possible to whatever the services that you're providing to that organization. So prohibiting you from providing those same services as an employee, right, to that new company. But sometimes when we're talking about third parties, it's not necessarily a non-compete sometimes. Sometimes it's more of you can't, it's more of an NDA, right? You as a vendor might have access to my proprietary and confidential information, but you can't then go use that information with a competitor. So you might be able to work for a competitor of mine as a third-party vendor, but you can't necessarily use, you know, we have protections in place that you can't use our information in servicing them. Um, There's also a lot of times non-solicitation agreements that we would, you know, require that you can't solicit individuals from, from the company. Um, so it depends. I mean, there's a couple of different ways ways that you can do it, but there are times where companies will have a exclusive arrangement with a third party and can have essentially um, enforceable non competes with that vendor that they cannot then go provide those same services, whether it's selling the product that's competitive um, to 
to a competitor. So for example, if a software company has you know one product that is competitive to one product of another company, maybe you don't want that third that third party vendor that's selling that to obviously do those work, um, perform those same services. And that's enforceable typically. I mean, there are certain state laws that have different requirements for independent contractors, true independent contractors um, than others. But again, it, it all needs to be my advice always is make it as narrow as the services that either the independent contractor or the employee is providing to you as possible, because that justifies, you know, the, the prohibited um, activity. When you start to open it up to sort of like, you know, things that are very tangential to what they're doing, that makes it a little bit harder to justify. Yeah. I think uh, some of the uh, times I've had to deal with non-competes, these were non-competes, drafted by clients that were not your clients, Kate, because I see not <laughs> they don't always listen to me. Not everyone listens. <laughs> are so overbroad and not narrowly tailored, and that's what I'm looking for. That's mana to me. You know, I'm I'm trying to get my clients to the next job as seamlessly as possible, and if they come to me and the non compete isn't narrowly tailored, and we're going to be dealing with choice of law stuff across state lines, I'm able to say, look. I'm not sure they're really going to try and enforce this. They're not really going to want to risk the time, effort, money on a headache about which law controls and then find out that even if they get to choose their choice of law, they're still going to lose on the issue because they didn't narrowly draft the agreement. And when I go to them and say, you're never going to get this thing enforced, I'd like to be able to say, your ridiculously overbroad agreement isn't going to fly in Massachusetts for sure. And I feel pretty good that it's not going to fly in uh, Delaware either. And yeah. so you make my job easier trying to get my clients out of their non-competes when you don't narrowly tailor the non-competes. Yeah. And it's not easy, right? It's not easy to draft these because when you're drafting these, you're, you're coming at it from what are all the things that could possibly happen? <laughs> so sometimes I think that's why they end up, you know, it's sort of like hindsight right? It's 2020 because after the fact, you know all the facts that led to this lawsuit. But at the time of the drafting, you don't know all the, the possible changes in this person's job and, and or the arguments they're going to make. So it is a little bit easier in hindsight to, to do that than when you're when you're drafting them. Um, but, you know, that's, that's why a lot of times, you know, it's nice to put something in those agreements that talk about, you know, reminding them, like, if, if you change your job, these, you know, Sometimes I'll put in there in the non-competition provision to say, you know, this is the current, you know, restrictions. But if your job changes to X, Y, and Z, you know, the restriction will change to, you know, prohibiting you from competing in a role that was the same in the last X amount of months that you were employed by the company um, so that that, you know, flows with it. And that works in a lot of jurisdictions, um, not in all, but um, that's one way to handle it. And the other thing that I do, just because we're talking about different people working in, in different places. I think it's also smart sometimes to put an agreement you, that you're required within the non-compete itself or restrictive covenant agreement itself to say, if you change and you move states, you need to notify. Sometimes you have to actually get permission from the company because <laughs> if the company is not in Idaho, they may not want to do business in Idaho um, or wherever it is. So putting that type of language in there so that the employee knows they have an affirmative obligation to notify or request for permission to actually work for that company in a new jurisdiction. I think that um, is helpful as well. Um, again, educating that person, but also, you know, if you end up in litigation later on, if they breach that portion of the agreement. Um, we've just answered a few questions. I want to ask you, I know we're short on time, but I want to ask you one more question 
um, that I'd be curious to hear your answer on. Uh, if an employee is living in Massachusetts and has some sort of non-compete that says you can't work for a competitor within 90 miles of us, hmm. and the employee is living within 90 miles of the competitor, but working remotely for them, and their you know, position that they're reporting to is located in Tennessee, do you have any thoughts on kind of what happens then when we're looking at their non-compete? <laughs> I'm trying to keep track of all the different things that you yeah, said. That it's a lot. mess. That's it's a, a mess. And, and the part of the problem is the arguments that, I mean, it, it kind of go, cuts both ways because if you're an employee trying to argue, well, I can, you know, I, but I actually live here and I've ever actually lived in this state, but meanwhile, they're providing services in that state. And then they're trying to use that same argument to avoid, you know, non-compete later on. I mean, it can really cut both ways, you know, without looking into a context. I mean, of course, I'm going to give you the lawyer answer, but it depends. Um, and I'm going to have to to look at it carefully. But of course, the argument's going to be, if you were providing services, any type of service to that company, you know, within that territory, and you will be continuing to provide services in that territory, I'm going to argue it should be enforceable. Um, if I need to, if I feel like you're going to be using information with a competitor. So um, that, that potentially unfair competition, you know, against my client. So, you know, you have to kind of take a case by case, but that's obviously a, a conversation you have to client to say, look, there's about four different things that could happen in this litigation, <laughs> three of which are not going to be beneficial to you. So let's determine, you know, how much we care about this. Right. I think that's the, I think that's an issue we're going to see a lot more of. I don't think Massachusetts has yet addressed that. And the flip yeah. side of that, no. Is this employee who's living within 90 miles of their work? Well, what if they move 95 miles away but are working remotely for a competitor that's down the street from you? Right. Are you are you taking the position that it's always out? So that that's the issue that I don't think we've seen a lot of yet. That yeah. I think we're seeing more of. Um, and I do think we'll see a lot of that in certain healthcare roles. I mean, obviously in Massachusetts, physician non-competes are banned, but but not in other types of healthcare positions. Um, and that's certainly something that comes up. It doesn't happen as much in, you know, like higher level positions that are not like within a certain mile territory, but it does happen a lot with sales and it happens a lot in a lot of healthcare litigation across the country because you're dealing with practices that are in 15 miles of each other. Um, so absolutely. Okay. Well, those are my questions. I they were good we, ones. <laughs> um, I think it's been great. I, I certainly learned from you today. So this has been helpful for me. me too. Right. Yeah. Well, if any, does anyone else have any questions in the last what, 30 seconds that we have? Looks like no more on our end. 